Welcome back to the Logical Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lodge. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, It's also something that's very personal for me. Um, it's, It's helped me in many ways. We're going to talk about ancient plant medicines. Um. I first got into foraging uh, several years ago. Me and my family, uh, we started foraging for wild edibles. Um, so we would pick chanterelles and morel mushrooms and things of that nature and make dandelion you know, tea or, or cattail tubers or what have you. And it led me on a path to really explore mycology, which is the study of mushrooms. And... When I started to study mushrooms, if you start to study mycology, one name stands out in the mycological world above all else, and that is Paul Stamets. And Paul Stamets is not actually a mycologist, but an amateur mycologist, which is somebody I fashion myself to be. Um, But Paul Stamets has devoted his life towards um, mycology, mushrooms. He grows them, um, has written several white papers on them, uh, peer-reviewed journals, um, and it's, it's very interesting some of the work that he's done, but it's hard to talk about mycology without talking about the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is psychedelic mushrooms. Now, for those of you that don't know, psychedelic mushrooms in 1972, I believe, under Richard Nixon was made a Schedule One drug, controlled substance. So what that means is it's federally banned by the United States uh, to be in possession of any amount. Um, Schedule One means that there is no medical use for the drug. It has an extremely high rate of addiction, um, and it's extremely harmful to uh, the physiology of the user. That's how the drugs were scheduled back in the 70s. So let's break that down a second when we're talking about psilocybin mushrooms. So where I live in southwest, um, or I'm sorry, southeast uh, United States, there are about nine different psychedelic mushrooms that grow wild in this area. Most of them are in the psilocybin family. There are a few in the psilocybin family. And there are a couple in the Amanita family. Um, They all produce various uh, effects and are triggered by various chemical compounds, but we'll get to that shortly. So specifically in this drug act, um, psilocybin mushrooms were considered a Schedule I drug. Um, So what makes that interesting is... The overdose value, meaning the value in which it would take for you to eat enough psilocybin mushrooms, enough psychedelic mushrooms to, like, die or overdose is way more than you could possibly consume in one setting. Um, So it's not dangerous to the user in a physiological sense. Um, They are the least addictive one of the least addictive drugs, um, sugar, caffeine, nicotine, all of these drugs, uh, alkaloids tend to be uh, on 
any chart that you examine, medical chart, um, have a higher response to addiction. So this is very, very low when it comes to addiction. Um, and it, let's see, I think, so, so it prevents no, it has actual no body harm. Uh, there is no high rate of addiction. Um, and so that pretty much covers our basis. So the mushroom itself, the psilocybin mushroom itself was along with a lot of drugs in 1972 was outlawed more for socio-political reasons. If you think in us history, what was going on in that time frame, uh, than it was for actual medical or, or drug reasons. Um, so up until that point, there was peer-reviewed clinical research being done on psychedelics, on psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, Timothy Leary famously was leading that um, at Berkeley. Uh, there were other, um, Albert Hoffman, uh, of course, was the first to discover LSD. He was also the first to synthesize psilocybin. Um, so from the 1950s, um, when they were kind of rediscovered by the West, and they were inadvertently rediscovered by a Life uh, magazine article. Um, so from the 1950s until 1972, clinical research was actually being done on these drugs. And so then after 1972, since there was no medical efficacy, according to the U.S. government, for these um, mushrooms, then we were unable to study them medically. So like marijuana, which is also Schedule One under this same act, um, we were the pharmaceutical companies, um, the universities, um, the scientists were unable to study these brain-altering, conscious-altering compounds. Um, so they were taken off the table for years. So it wasn't until the turn of the century, this, this new century, um, in the late 2000s that medical research was started up again on psilocybin, psilocybin in particular. Psilocybin is the active drug that is in um, psychoactive mushrooms, or in particularly these psilocybin-based or psilocybin-based mushrooms. So psilocybin research has been taking place now uh, for about 10 years in, in clinical trials. And what we have learned, what science has taught us about the, the drug itself is very, very interesting. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you guys today about was I wanted to kind of take magic mushrooms out of the grateful dead seedy underbelly of hippies and bring it more into the uh, literature of science into the catalog of science so to speak so to solidify in your minds just like marijuana use is be becoming more and more prevalent as certain states are starting to legalize it certain states are starting to legalize psilocybin mushrooms and the reason why they're doing this is because of the medical um, characteristics of it um, and from somebody that has suffered from depression my whole life anxiety my whole life has been on ssris um you know longer than i've been off of them um i've been in treatments of, of all sorts uh, for, for my personal issues, and I have found nothing to be more efficacious in its works than 
psilocybin. And we're going to talk about why that is and what is actually going on in our brain and why it's actually more effective than SSRIs and why studies are actually showing this now and why um, SSRIs are actually being shown because of the psilocybin research. Um, are being less prescribed today than, than, than they have in the past. So that, that's exciting news for, for those that are suffering with some of these lifelong ailments who, if you're like me, get to a point where you don't really care where the answer is coming from. You just want relief. It's like any other sickness. Um, you're just looking for a cure. So this could be a cure for a lot of people with mental illnesses that they may not even uh, realize it because of the social taboo that's been associated with it or because they may not even realize that this thing, um, this, this chemical compound provides the, the, the brain altering chemistry that is needed to make a real change um, in your life from someone that's suffering from long-term depression. So let's talk about what it is and what they do. So from a organic chemistry uh, perspective, um, psilocybin <clears throat> is a organic compound that is found in uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, to not go too deep into the organic chemistry aspect of this, the only thing that we really, really need to know about this particular uh, uh, compound is that it ends, the covalent bond ends in NM-dimethyltryptophan. And we're going to get back to what that means. But for those of you that don't know what NM-dimethyltryptophan is, that is DMT. DMT is the most powerful psychoactive compound on the planet. We produce it naturally in our bodies. It's found in most plants. It's found in most funguses. It's found all over nature. We're not really sure what it does. We're not really sure why we have it. We're not really sure why we produce as much as as much of it as we do on a daily basis. But DMT is the most powerful psychoactive compound, um, and psilocybin, the, 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 the chemical compound itself, actually ends with NM-dimethyltryptophan. So does lysergic acid, LSD. So does mescaline, which is what peyote is. So all of these um, ancient plant medicines have this same chemical compound, NM-dimethyltryptophan. Side note, little interesting side note um it has high concentrations of nm-dimethyltryptophan in the acacia tree which some scholars speculate was what the burning bush was so some scholars speculate that this bush as it was smoking uh was that dmt was inhaled and hence the hallucinations the hallucinations of moses this is some people's speculations it's just an interesting thing to think about but so dmt this Covalent, uh, this this uh, chemical bond rather, um, is found naturally in us, and it's found naturally in all these in these components. But psilocybin, in particular, what makes it so fascinating is it is one of the few chemical compounds that is known to science, which creates something called neurogenesis. Now, if we break that word down, neuro, you know, obviously our brain, genesis, obviously being beginning. So it's the start of neurological pathways in our brain. So essentially, this is how the brain functions. And I'm going to break this down as simply and as easy to understand as possible. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on this matter. Again, I've just studied it. I'm going to share with you my knowledge. You can fact check it, do whatever you want with it. But essentially, this is what happens. 
trauma of some sort, whether it is you are pushed by your little brother or you have a diaper rash or whatever happens, so so pain of some sort, trauma of some sort leaves a pathway, a neurological pathway in our brain. It connects neurons together to avoid that trauma in the future, okay? So, when after World War I, when these people were coming back, these troops were coming back with, you know, shell shock syndrome, they were actually experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome. So, what their brain was actually experiencing was these new neurological pathways have been formed by this intense amount of stress, and they have rewritten the other neurological pathways that were previously there. And they're doing this, your brain is making these pathways as a protective measure to protect itself and the body from going through that traumatic event again. Okay? So, what neurogenesis does, what makes neurogenesis so fascinating and so much different from, uh, let's say, serotonin or dopamine or any of these other uh, chemical compounds that are found in our brain and found naturally in, uh, in our environment is neurogenesis actually creates new pathways. So it bypasses, in a sense, the old, not necessarily bypasses, but it makes that, it makes that chemical pathway between those neurons, it lessens that travel space. So I have heard it best summed up by a... Uh, I believe this was a mycologist best summed this up as it's like putting a fresh blanket of snow down on the ground. So you've been sledding all day and you've made your tracks on the hill and you're going on those same tracks over and over and over again. And then four inches of snow falls. And yes, you can still see those tracks. They're still there, but now you get to make new tracks. So essentially that is the uh, way the best way in which I can describe what happens during neurogenesis. So your brain creates these new pathways. And again, psilocybin is one of the few chemical compounds that we know of that actually creates this process. And this process is very, 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 very important when it comes to the regenerative growth of the neurons in the brain after experiencing stress. Um, the same function can take place and has been shown to take place, medically speaking, um, through meditation, whether that meditation is um, spatial meditation or whether it is... Um, Oh, what's the, there's, there's so many popular forms of meditation now, but, but, but any way in which you calm your brain, any way prayer uh, works the same, um, biological mechanism happens in the same way, any way in which your brain, um, you can cut that white noise out, you're actually, you're slowing that stress response down, you're actually forming new neurological pathways. That route takes a very, very long time. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of, you know, self-control. It takes a lot of hard work. Um, but if you were to do that and couple that with psilocybin, the results, clinically speaking, across the board, unanimously, for every user, 
is the same. So that, what I just said, those universal terms, those universal claims that I just made, is very rarely, if at all, ever made in medicine. But the reason why those claims can be made and the reason why that is actually true is because of how our brain chemistry works. So this NM-dimethyltryptophan that we make naturally in our brain every single day, again, which is a part of that covalent bond of psilocybin, right, ends in NM-dimethyltryptophan, that molecule itself is probably going to be the key to that neurogenesis, the key to the function of that neurogenesis. So what am I freaking going on and on and on and on and on about? What am I even talking about, right? So let's just, let's just talk about some results. So here are some real-time results that have been recorded by scientists, that have been recorded by people that are much smarter than me, okay? So some people have reported that after one session, they have been cured of neurological uh, impairments like stuttering, uh, of uh, restless leg syndrome, of uh, sleep issues, eating issues, post-traumatic stress. That's just after one session completely cured. So these could be lifelong ailments that they've had to deal with. And then after one clinical session, I'm not talking about you're going out on New Year's Eve and you're eating a bunch of mushrooms that you got from some dude, you know, uh, across the railroad tracks or whatever. I'm talking about, you know, these, this was done in a clinical setting. Columbia University uh, was one of them that actually did this. Um, so it, it's, it's showing us, and then, a, a, by the way, uh, which I find Super fascinating. A five-year follow-up on this same study actually shows that this that singular experience to be one of the most spiritual experiences that these people have ever had in their lifetime. So even after five years, they look back on that singular experience and say, yeah, this was a profound experience in my life, and I rank it as one of the most profound uh, life-changing events. So this goes to show you that it's just not a something to sit down and party with and, and blah, 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 blah. That is what the Western society, what Western civilization has kind of boxed these mind-altering substances into. Uh, we've made them illegal. We've made them contentious in our society. And we've all kind of rested into the, the, the drug of choice, which is alcohol. Which I find very fascinating as a person that makes and manufactures alcohol. Um, I tend to look at civilizations, especially ancient civilizations, in two categories. I tend to look at these civilizations as there are alcohol-based civilizations, which tend to be civilizations that emphasize language. They tend to be civilizations that have more advanced mathematical concepts. They tend to be civilizations that have higher urban populations. Now, why? Why would, what would that have to do with alcohol? Well, let's think about this. Uh, we need a way to preserve our calories. We need a way to preserve calories for times in which we don't have calories, okay? Um, so one way of doing that is fermentation. So if we are fermenting some of 
some of the goods that we have grown right out of the soil we need to be able to account for that fermentation we need to be able to account for the calories and the goods that have been produced from this fermentation so we need a way to communicate this we need a way to keep track of this so these alcohol-based societies that um kind of uh grew and they really took root once uh the discovery of distillation, or the rediscovery, rather, of distillation uh, happened around the 1200s. Um, so prior to that, most civilizations, their drug of choice was the plant that grew in the region that they were living. So to be intoxicated on wine or to be intoxicated on beer, you're going to have to consume a lot of wine. You're going to have to consume a lot of beer because we have to remember in, in that time frame, everybody, children, men, women, and children, drank beer and wine depending on the region of the world you lived in. And it was very, 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 very weak. It was weak enough to just uh, drink it without getting sick and you wouldn't get drunk. So everyone's drinking alcohol, and then your drug of choice is going to be, your society, rather, is going to structure itself around the drugs that are in the region. So what are you talking about now? What am I even talking about? All right, so let's talk about probably the most famous ancient civilization, Egypt. So if we look at the Egyptians, yes, of course, they had alcohol. Yes, of course, the Egyptians were buried with alcohol. We found the gold urns. We've done chemical analysis of those gold urns because gold doesn't rust. And we've been able to see the chemical compounds that were found. So we know that they drank wine. It was spiced. It was mold. We know that they had beer. We also know that they consume psychedelics. Specifically, they consumed the Egyptian blue Lotus, which I believe has the psychoactive compound bufatine, which I believe also has the ends in NM-dimethyltryptophan, which contains, so, so bufatine in this Egyptian blue lotus um, contains that same chemical compound, NM-dimethyltryptophan. So this Egyptian blue lotus was fermented in honey, honey being hard to get. Obviously, there weren't apiaries. Uh, we didn't really learn that until the 1600s. But um, so they would collect honey, which is aseptic. They would ferment the Egyptian blue lotus. It would increase the strength through the fermentation process of this bufatine. Then the uh, high priest would drink this fermented psychoactive concoction they would then go into the spirit realm and talk to Ra and Arias and all of these Egyptian deities right and if we look at the reliefs all over Egypt the this this carving of the lotus is very important and it wasn't because it grew on the Nile it wasn't because it was uh, the symbol for birth um, it took all of these attributes on because it contained the psychoactive compound because it was cultivated by the Egyptians for the psychoactive compound. Um, another one being theobroma. Theobroma is the uh, psychoactive compound found in chocolate. Um, so, you know, I'm a chocoholic. You hear people say this, or I'm addicted to chocolate. Well, guess what? In your brain chemistry, you actually are consuming a chemical compound that is highly addictive and it's psychotropic to an extent. Um, so depending on which region of the world you were in depended on the drug of choice. I find that to be very fascinating because 
the mythologies and the traditions that grew up in these civilizations directly reflect and correlate to the drugs that these people were using. Um, an example that I find to be highly fascinating is the Amanita muscaria. So the Amanita muscaria mushroom, for those of you that don't know, is the Mario mushroom. It's the classic Christmas mushroom. You've seen it a thousand times. Um, it's, it's a big toadstool. It's red, and it's got the white dots on it, right? It's on Christmas cards. It's associated with Christmas. Um, it's, like I said, the Mario mushroom. Amanita muscaria doesn't contain psilocybin, but it contains a different drug. It actually contains two psychoactive compounds, muscarin and muscarol. Um, both of these are contained in various levels depending on the flush of that particular mushroom. So in Siberia, where it is cold and wet and very few days of warm, when there are day weather when the weather is warm, there will be these giant flushes, because this is the one time for that mushroom to reproduce, there'll be giant flushes of Amanita muscaria. These mushrooms can be boiled multiple times, and that muscarol and muscarin can be leached out of those mushrooms, and those mushrooms can be then used as a food source. So when you're talking about Siberia and you're, you're, you're etching out your living in Siberia, there's not a whole lot of food there, so they're going to eat that, right? Or you can take the mushroom raw and you can consume it. And by doing that, you're going to get pretty sick. That muscarin, I believe, I don't have it mixed up, but I believe it's the muscarin which will induce vomiting and, and nausea and things like that. So typically, shaman would consume the, the, the mushroom first in Siberia, would consume the mushroom first, then they would urinate into ceremonial bowls, and then the people in the village would drink the shaman's urine that muscarin, that poison, had been filtered through the kidneys, but that muscarol had ended up in that urine, so that intoxicant was now in the shaman's urine, and the people would then drink it, okay? Why am I telling you this? Well, one of the things that these people happen to do, uh, they herded caribou. They were caribou herders. Um, caribou go by a different name, um, reindeer. So caribou, reindeer, are the one of, I believe, three animals that are known to purposefully consume drugs, psychoactive drugs. And the reindeer actually consumes the Amanita muscaria purposefully to become intoxicated to the point where they fall over. Um, and we know that they are consuming this mushroom intentionally to become intoxicated because when the shamans are urinating into their ceremonial bowls, if there are any caribou or reindeer nearby, they smell that muscarin and they will literally come and knock that shaman over to lick that urine out of that bowl. Again, why are you listening to this? Why am I telling you this? Okay, so let's just knock down what I said. A reindeer herder living out in the snow, eating a red and white mushroom, that is poisonous, that causes his face to go flush red, makes him very happy. His reindeer are flying around because they're high on mushrooms. You guys following what I'm saying? You, you picking up what I'm putting down? Right? So we have the mythology of Santa Claus comes from Siberian shaman peeing 
after eating a mushroom and Coca-Cola. But I just, I find, I find these histories of these substances and their uses throughout history fascinating. And it's glaringly omitted, the drug use is glaringly omitted in the retelling of our history, even throughout the 20th century. I mean, when, when, when I was growing up, uh, you know, we had the History Channel. And when the History Channel, before it was Bigfoot had a baby with Jesus or whatever's on the History Channel now, um, or ancient aliens uh, impregnated the pyramids with whatever, I don't know. But the History Channel just used to be, when I was growing up, it just used to be black and white footage of World War II. Like, that's all it was, just 24 hours of just, like, B-52 bombers dropping bombs on Japan or whatever. Like, 24 hours. But it was all about World War II. What was missing from that... What was missing from that conversation and what is still missing from that conversation is the use of methamphetamine by the Nazis, by the, by the Blitzkrieg, right? The Nazis would not have even come close to doing what they were doing unless they would have had meth. The Battle of the Bulge was all about us cutting off their meth supply, right? So I just find it interesting that even in the retelling of modern history, we want to leave out the very important usage of various drugs. We talk about the ancient Greeks. We think about the ancient Greeks. We think about, oh, well, the ancient Greeks were luscious, right? How many stories do you know of them getting drunk on wine and they sat around and they ate grapes, right? And they did all that. Wrong. The ancient Greeks actually participated themselves and realized the importance in psychedelics. Um, they, everyone in ancient Greece for over a thousand, I think closer to 2,000 years, was required once a year to make a pilgrimage to consume the Eleusian mysteries. And part of this tradition was you couldn't talk about what they were, what it was, what, what you experienced. You went, I believe it was for a full week. Uh, you consumed a very tiny wine glass full of wine and other spices. And then you talked to your dead relatives or did whatever, and then you returned. We've recently found out through chemical analysis that they were actually growing ergot on rye grains, ergot being the predecessor to lysergic acid, LSD. Ergot actually produces a, a similar chemical compound, LSA, both of which, LSD and L LSA, again, end with that NM dimethyltryptophan. So even the ancient Greeks were participating in these psychedelics. Um, so it's I'm hard-pressed when I look at the planet, when I look at history, I'm hard-pressed from my perspective to find a culture or civilization that does not have a psychoactive compound at its roots. Whether that psychoactive compound is kava, you know, we're talking about in, in, in the Pacific, the North Pacific, uh, we're talking about... Um, it, it, it might be um, San Pedro cactus, it might be Hostilla mimosus, it might be morning glory. There are so many uh, plant medicines that cause psychoactive effects that have been known to man, by man, forever, you know, um, that societies base themselves around. I think, this is my personal thesis, I think that 
alcohol-based societies, so if you're following me, so alcohol-based societies overtook these psychedelic-based societies purely based off of their consumption of that particular alkaloid. So one society's consuming alcohol, the other society is consuming psychedelics. As we know, you consume too much alcohol, yeah, you might get happy and have a good time with your friends. You might also kill somebody. You might also get so angry that you beat someone to death. So there are... It's highly, highly unlikely that you're going to have violent or violent connotations when it comes to psychedelics. So when it comes to the mindsets of cultures, the mindset of an alcohol-based culture compared to the mindset of a you know, psychedelic-based culture, well, obviously the alcohol-based culture has won out. And if we look at our current situation, the world superpowers are all alcohol-based cultures, and the psychedelic-based cultures that are still in existence are tribal, right? We, we, we look at them as, like, less than us or primitive or whatever. We, we like if there's, like, a, a hierarchy because that's what we tend to want to do as Western Europeans. We want to say, like, okay, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, and then down here are these, like, tribes living in the jungle. To speak on those tribes living in the jungle, I think they point to a deeper metaphysical truth. I mean, so famously, one of the most famous psychoactive compounds in the jungle is something called ayahuasca. You may have heard of it. You may have not. Anthony Bourdain on one of his episodes famously took ayahuasca, you know. Um, So ayahuasca um, is a brew. It's a tea that is made in the Amazon rainforest that causes hallucinations that last between 12 and 16 hours. It induces vomiting, diarrhea. It is a full body effect. This isn't something you're going to party on. Okay. It is a very full bodied experience. Um, and it is taxing and exhaustive. Um, you know, the people that participate in it, um, ceremonially, it is something you have to work yourself up to. What I find fascinating about that particular drug is we're talking about the Amazon rainforest, which has, you know, between 50 to 100,000 different species of plants. And there's only two that can produce ayahuasca. So out of these 50 to 100,000 species of plants, these, you know, people that most of us would say are lesser than us because they are primitive or whatever, and we're more evolved and civilized because we have iPhones— These people have figured out or held the tradition of finding these two plants out of 50 to 100,000 plants in the Amazon. And actually, I may may be misspeaking on that number. That number actually may be higher now that I think about it. I'm not sure, but I know it's a lot. I know it's tens of thousands of species of plants that are in the Amazon, and there's only two. One produces the NM-dimethyltryptophan. The other one produces the MAOI inhibitor which allows the NM-dimethyltryptophan to bypass the stomach and get into the bloodstream through the large intestine, and hence the um, ayahuasca experience. So, again, I think that's, is it happen chance? I mean, is it happen chance that they go through this elaborate uh, chemical process to uh, essentially brew this, this tea to get this chemical compound, to then consume it, to then talk and and go through and work through their troubles and their problems. Because to them, what they are doing is they are treating an illness. We do not look at our mental um, 
illnesses as illnesses. We tend to look at our mental illnesses as mental shortcomings, as something that we need to um, get, get over, right, instead of embrace and instead of to take that experience and fold it into our own life experience and realize that it's a part of us, psychedelics help you understand this. Help you understand that that these things are there to help you overcome some of these mental disabilities because we have to understand some of these mental disabilities are caused by trauma. Some of these are developed as we become human beings, right? So let's to be clear, here is my friendly disclaimer. I'm not advocating for anyone to go out and do a Schedule One drug. I'm not advocating for every, anyone to be in possession of a Schedule One drug. What I'm advocating is for you to go and do your research. Go and read the white papers. Go and read the clinical research that is being done Go and research for yourself the history on these psychedelics. This is needs to be out of the realm of tie-dye and Grateful Dead and people that say dude and man all the time. All right, This needs to be out of that realm, and it needs to be in the realm, I think, of scientists. Unfortunately, some of the best scientists we have are working for the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, whatever. Give it over to them. That's fine. Just we – this is obvious medicine that – civilizations from all over the world have independently concluded as a treatment for specific illnesses, illnesses that we tend to ignore. So when we tend to see, you know, mass shootings on television and things like that, or whatever the issue is, you know, the first thing we want to say is, you know, we want to ban guns or whatever, what I see is someone that was very troubled, somebody that had a that was hurting, somebody that was in pain that then wanted to do pain for others. What I see was a human being that is more complex and more nuanced than just the person that went into a school and shot somebody. Um, these tragedies and things like that, they're not going to be stopped. Violence ugliness, hatefulness isn't going to be stopped by more government or more laws or whatever you think is going to be the solution. The solution is going to come from the individuals and it's going to come from within, right? So the saying that we have in our household and is uh, it, it, it comes, it's within us, but not from us. So what I'm, I guess, trying to get my viewers, trying to get you guys to do is to think about some of these things that I'm talking about. Think about psychedelics and do your research. You know, the history behind it is muddled. You know, Albert Hoffman, Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, some of these, some of these figures in um, – psychedelics have really muddled the waters for us. I mean, Timothy Leary was a part of the MK Ultra experiments that was held by the CIA. I mean, he was just 
not a good character. I mean, Terrence McKenna, yeah, he developed the the stoned ape theory, which is an interesting theory, uh, which uh, we, we kind of talked about in a previous podcast. Um, but some of these looming figures, they've kind of become personalities in and of themselves, and it's hard to disassociate the actual science from these, these figures. So do your research. Be careful when you're doing your research. Um, be careful to throw the the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of people just want to say, oh, it's drugs. Well, I hate to break it to you. If you're a human being, you do drugs. So you can't just say no to drugs. That doesn't, it doesn't, that's not how this works. We all do drugs. It's how you want to view them. It's how you put a sociological perspective on them. And you could say, well, no, the law defines it. Well, not really, because it really just depends on what imaginary line I'm going to be standing over or standing in uh, as to whether or not it's legal for me to consume this substance or not. In my personal opinion, I don't think the government should tell anyone what to put in their body. That's neither here nor there, including, you know, needles, including whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't think the government should tell anyone what to do with their body. Whether it's to uh, a baby, whatever. If it's yours, if it's your body, leave it alone. If you want to be able to consume whatever substances you want to be able to consume, you want to take a shot, not take a shot, you want to have an abortion, not have an abortion, I don't care. I don't think the government should have a say in it. And I think the government having a say over our consciousness, which is essentially what I'm talking about right now, is probably the, 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 the gravest oversight, I would say, um, one of the things that is probably holding us back as a society is the fact that we do tend to look at these things as, oh, mushrooms, they're a party drug or they're this or they're that. Well, no, they actually have changed and healed people. They, uh, you know, cancer patients that are at the end of their life, you know, when given a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms, all of them have said, I'm at peace now with my in- impending death. I mean, so at, there's some points there's some when people are in so much pain or or they're they're struggling so much with addiction that they're reaching out to literally anything that they they can to help with that and you know i find it fascinating that they're doing a study right now speaking of addiction uh, on ketamine so ketamine treatments are being shown to actually treat addiction which is fascinating. Ketamine is a psychoactive. It actually doesn't end, I believe, if I remember my organic chemistry correctly, it does not have NM-dimethyltryptophan, but it is a different alkaloid altogether. Um, but ketamine is actually being used to treat addiction. So we're using drugs to treat other drugs, whereas previously we were just using weaker versions of those drugs to treat drug addiction. I mean, I don't know how insane that seems to some people, but it seems a little insane to me. Um, so alcoholism, all of these things have efficacious treatment plans that are waiting in the natural world for you and your body chemistry. Um, they await you. They await your research. They await you having these conversations with your doctor, you having these conversations with um, people that are far more educated than myself. But I think it's necessary and I think it's important um, if you're one of these people that suffer from any one of these ailments that I just named to consider psychedelics, uh, to seek medical advice, seek medical help and consider psychedelics in the proper setting and the proper, you know, obviously medical, medically assisted um, where you can. I know there are certain states that you can actually go to right now to receive treatment. I know that Tennessee, I believe, is one of eight states that you can actually get ketamine treatment delivered to your doorstep prescribed to you 
from uh, specialty doctors. Um, again, it's new emerging um, research because it's recently the DEA and the executive branch of our government has kind of take a more lax position on some of these chemical compounds. Um, it's funny, though. Um, we, we look at the government, what they have outlawed and what they haven't. Um, well, you know, famously, they outlawed marijuana because of, uh, you know, Mexican and black jazz players. I mean, we, we, we kind of know this to be historically true. Unfortunately, it's a historical blight, unfortunately, but that's why marijuana is illegal. That and has a lot to do with uh, uh, the tree plantations. Um, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. But, but what I find interesting is um, the DEA uh, actually outlawed peyote. So peyote is a cactus, a sacred cactus that grows in the northwest, or I'm sorry, the southwest, American southwest. And it takes like 15 to 30 years to grow to maturity. And then you take the fruits from this cactus. They look like little stones. And then you make a tea out of it, and you've extracted mescaline. Mescaline is the, the chemical compound that is the psychoactive, right? So they outlawed that. But they slipped up. And they didn't actually outlaw all the cactuses that contain mescaline. So mescaline itself is outlawed. Peyote is outlawed. But I will say this. You might be able to go to a certain Lowe's that I know about. Really, it's any Lowe's, guys. I think this is hilarious. Home Depot has been busted by the DA. But uh, they actually carry cactuses there that they get in wholesale by like Mexican farmers that are just going out into the desert and they're just like digging up cactuses. And one of those cactuses happens to be a San Pedro cactus. This particular cactus was actually um, not designated to be a class one drug. So I own San Pedro cactuses. I give them away. I've grown them from seed. Um, give them to my mom, give them to anyone. They're completely legal to own. They're beautiful cactuses. They have a beautiful white flower. They're fast growing. They're hardy. They can grow in this region. They grow all throughout California wild. They're, and they're best propagated through cuttings. You can grow them from seeds. I grew mine from seeds. They're very difficult to do that way. But San Pedro cactus just so happens to have by weight about 4% mescaline, which is actually higher than peyote. So you can drive out to Southern California, you could bring back a pickup truck load full of mescaline-containing cactuses, have not broken the law whatsoever until you made that into a tea and consumed it. And that is the government we live under. So liberals, conservatives, whoever, whatever you're listening to, are you okay with that? Like, do you understand the absurdity of what I just said, that you can just go to Southern California, pick up a pickup truck full of cactuses, bring them back to Paris, Tennessee. You could fill our water tower, dose everyone in Paris with mescaline. Everyone in Paris could just be tripping on mescaline. Like, that, that's, that's crazy to me. That's crazy to me that it's available, right? Or, right... You could go into the desert and pick this 30-year-old cactus, and as soon as it pick it up off the ground, you could be arrested by the DEA for possession of a Schedule One. 
both containing the same compound. One, actually, the legal one containing more. So, but you can go to Lowe's and sometimes find this cactus. It won't be labeled San Pedro cactus, um, but the, it's it's star shaped. It's iconic. You've seen it. It it looks like the big Segura cactuses almost, but they're it's a it's a specific star shape. And when you Google image search for this cactus, you're going to say, "Oh my gosh, I've seen this in Home Depot or Wofford's or where, whatever nursery you you go to." And it's because um, you know Mexicans go out into the Mexican desert and they grab up as many cactuses as they can, they pot them, and then they wholesale these things to a Home Depot or wherever, and they make it into the United States, and I just think it's hilarious. So there is an instance, I believe, in Illinois of the DEA raiding a uh, Home Depot that was selling San Pedro cactuses until they realized that, oh, wait, we didn't even classify San Pedro themselves. We just classified mescaline. The DEA actually, by the way, the Drug Enforcement Agency, is one of the most fascinating agencies in my in my book. They actually raided Monticello. For those of you that don't know what Monticello is, that is what's on the back of our nickel. So this agency... Everything I've told you so far, beautiful guys. You, they've just done a fantastic job. It fully makes sense. It's not crazy. It's not mind control. It's not population control whatsoever what they're doing. Makes total sense. They raided Monticello, 1992. Look it up over Thomas Jefferson's poppies. It's ridiculous. But anyways, I could speak hours and hours and hours on the effects of these plant medicines. I know I rambled on and on and on, but... I hope the message that you get is, guys, if you're in pain, if you're in suffering, if you're suffering, if you tried everything else, don't give up. Don't give up. There's there's more hope for you out there. There's more medicines out there. Talk to your doctor. Do some research. Don't give up. I don't care if you're 80. I don't care how old you are. Don't give up. Okay, this isn't for millennials. This isn't for Gen Z. This is for the boomers. This is for uh, this is for the the generations that are older than me. Guys, there's a lot of really cool science that is happening as we speak that has to do with this subject. If you're suffering from these diseases, if you're suffering from mental illness, do your research, consider it. But anyways, thanks for listening to the Logical Podcast. I hope I didn't ramble too long. I haven't done a solo in a long time, so I'm a little off. A big shout-out to Mike Weatherford and my producer, Kevin, always showing up and hanging out and listening to all this nonsense. We'll talk to you later, friends and family. See you.